Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. All right. This is the Meat Eater Podcast. We're recording uh, Prince of Wales Island. I'm, I'm here with one of my uh, favorite people on the planet, Mr. Ron Layton. What's your middle name, Ron? No middle name. No middle name whatsoever, just Ron Layton. And also Giannis, the Latvian lover, Putellis, who uh, just got himself his first sick of blacktail buck, purely recreational hunt, not like a thing. I want to be in the hero, but, but tell him your hunting story, Giannis. You know, I was retelling my hunting story about an hour ago over here, and I found out that I killed Jones Buck. No, you did not. <laughs> yeah, he did. <clears throat> I just told you I like to hunt down here in the lower muskegs. We were in the lower muskegs. Because muskeg. there were... No muskegs. That's true. That's not a false thing. There I, are bucks all over the place. What about the other forky that he didn't... Yanni, tell your hunting story. I snuck up through some muskegs three <laughs> nights ago. This is record. See, we're in, see we're, why are you hunting at night? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me set the stage real quick. What, what would you like me to call we're, it? We're, dusk, dusk, pre-dusk. We're in, three hours pre-dusk. We're out working on a secret project. And in the morning and at nighttime, there's a little free time, which Giannis who you might know from his famous T-shirt line, the Hunt to Eat T-shirt line. You can go to HuntToEat.com, buy one of Yanni's T-shirts, and help uh, make him even richer than he's already become selling his T-shirts. You should send Ron a free T-shirt. I will. Um, Joan would like one. The Alaska shirt's on its way. So You make it an Alaska Hunt to Eat shirt? Yeah. Okay, so... So do you have any boots to, to go along with that shirt? Nope. He's not in the boot-making <laughs> business yet. Just T-shirt, man. So... Uh, 
Yanni's been filling some of his free time. Like the time normal people would spend going home watching TV after work, Yanni goes out and looks for blacktail bucks. Tell me your story, Yanni. I was sneaking around with bad wind. I ended up on a little knob. Like you were gassy? No, bad. Uh, there, there were no steady thermals. It was just uh, the wind direction kept going. Willowa. Step, I'm a, how would you call it? Willowa. Willowa. That's a bad wind? Well, you, you never know which way it's going to be blowing. It doesn't. It's not consistent. It just it, it'll shift. It might be coming out of the east one time, out of the south another, and then it's called know. the Willowa. Willowa. I had Willowa, and it betrayed my location to what I thought was a buck. All I heard was boom, 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 boom as it bounded off. So I ran over to where his bed was that I saw then. So he was in his bed. He ran off. I stood there and looked for 10 minutes, nothing. I started still hunting down through the woods, waited for another 30 minutes, and I heard boom, 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 boom again. He drifted off. Never could catch up to him. But you just knew he was a buck. You could feel it in your bones. He's a single animal, you know. It's, he sounded heavy. He had a swing. Where he was bedded, he had himself a real nice perch with a nice outlook. Seemed like a buck bed. Seemed like a place you'd yeah. sleep if you were a deer. Steve and I came back the next night. Sneaking in real quiet. Real quiet. With great wind from a different angle. And we got to about, I don't know, 100 yards or so. Maybe a little less of his bed. And we sat down. Steve blew on his black-tailed deer, deer call that Ron gave him. It's called the Summoner. Do you know I named that call the Summoner? Really? Yeah. Because it summons him? That's exactly right. It's supposed to. That's, why, have, he, that's why he gave it to you. Yeah. I'm going to get to black-tailed deer calls, your black-tailed deer calls in a minute. But finish the story, because I blew the summoner. Yeah. We waited. It felt like 15. might have been 10. But I had it in my head that we should be moving. I was getting ready to say, let's go, let's go. Let's now, go, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, picture this. This is dank, dark, <clears throat> temperate, rainforest nastiness. Yeah. It here's looks, that old buck. It looks Cre- thick when you just walk around it, through it, or whatever. It's the minute you start to hunt in there and try to find a small 100, what do you think the buck weighs, 150 pounds or so? I, I didn't see it. No, no, no a, a buck. A, average blacktail buck. <sighs> Probably that, yeah. 120? Yeah. I think they look like 120 pounds. Yeah, so not, not a giant animal, but man, when you start looking for those suckers, then you go, man, this place is really thick. It really is a jungle. Yeah, so... Anyways, we so had I, one I, I laid sh- down some sweet notes yeah. on the summoner. We had one good shooting lane. And 10 minutes later, I was looking up at the top of the hill and saw a little brown patch move. I told Steve to quit moving. Quit, so I, so quit. I promptly, uh, he said, don't move. So I quickly moved in order to look where he was looking. <laughs> but I glassed him. There he was looking down at us, looking for that. Looking for that. What are they coming to look for, Ron, when they hear that call? They're curious. They're very, they, they become very curious. And normally, you're not going to get a buck to come to a call this time of year. Usually, usually they will come, you know, during the rut. But what we had going for us is we snuck in on his bed. I think all he had to do was basically stand up to be like, what the hell was that? Well, I think that's basically what he did. I don't think he traveled, probably. He probably just was like, oh, what's going on now? <sighs> Yeah. Well, curious. Yeah. Again. But when you, 
Hey, Yanni, go grab a couple uh, rounds of deer calls. Oh, I don't want to blow them now, do I? I'll blow a damn thing. Oh, okay. Um, so anyhow, Yanni shot the buck. It was a good shot. It was Yanni's first sick of blacktail. Now, Ron, let, let me set the stage here a little bit just because I'll explain. Ron, you Ron was born in Ketchikan, Alaska many years ago. Um, spent his whole life doing a variety of things, but always hunting and fishing and whatnot. And Yanni just laid down a large collection of Ron's uh, primarily handmade Sitka blacktail calls or blacktail calls. But first, I got a question for you, Ron. Uh, before I ask a question, I'll explain. There's this stuff like you have the, the rainforest around here is just thick ass rainforest. A lot of it's old growth. A lot of it's been cut at various times. It's just really hard to see. But here and there, there's these features out in the rainforest called muskeg. And I think it's successional. Like they were wetlands, you know, marshy ground where peat got built up and it, it creates these openings. It's like, it seems metal-like, but it's very heavy moss and sedge in there. And it's like the only place you can actually see what's going on. Ron, do you think that the blacktails like the muskeg or is it just you can see them because it's the only place you can see anything like do you think that they're actually in it or you just notice them because it's the first time you can see beyond arm's reach well i think on certain days they're going to be in those muskegs because of the sun's out and they're they're just milling around um, normally, I mean, if it's a real bad day, if the sun is really pounding down, you're going to find all most of the deer in the tall timber. Really? And if you've ever been in the edge of a tall timber and have a breeze go through there, you'll understand why then. Because it's probably a good maybe 20 degrees cooler. And especially with the breeze coming down through the the uh, tall timber and the trees there, it's real comfortable. I know it was comfortable for me when I'm standing there in the tall timber. Yeah. Rather than out in the sun. And a lot of people don't realize it here, but the last couple summers was almost record-breaking as far as... It's hot as hell. Yes, it is. And I've had that throughout my life uh, where you do have uh, warmer summers than others. So I know what, what standing around in a muskeg could do to me, you know, and, and especially if there's no breeze at all. Yeah. You're going to overheat, especially if you're in your camel gear. Or yeah. Whatever, so. Do they like to feed in that muskeg? Is there grass or anything that grows in there that they like? You know, they, they, they like to forage anything. And in that muskeg there, a lot of them, you might might see that slough. Yep. Okay, well, they do eat the slough berry. And if you look close when you're through there, you'll see a lot of the slough berries. So. And they'll forage on almost anything in there. Um, normally... They eat, they eat on a plant called deer heart. And this deer heart, the reason why, why it's called deer heart, it, it, 
the plant, the leaf itself is in the shape of a deer heart. Gotcha. But they find this very good, and there's been talk about how clear cuts uh, will expose a lot of that deer heart to the sun, which actually is bad for the deer heart. It takes a lot of the nutrition out of it. So a deer eating that is not going to have near the nutrition that it would have if they were eating that deer heart under the canopy. Gotcha. You know, in the tall timber. And in the wintertime, especially with deep snow and stuff like that, they are dependent on this deer heart in the tall timber. And that's how how, how gets them through a, a deep, cold winter. I've seen uh, deer, uh, when there's a lot of snow, forced to the beach. And years ago, when you had a lot of snow forced to the beach, then there was sometimes that... Uh, they had to actually bring bundles in of hay and start dropping around on the beach uh, edges just to help some of the deer survive the winter. No, no kidding. No kidding. I've heard that when you get bad snow, they'll come down to feed on like sea lettuce and kelp that washes up on the beach and stuff? Yeah, whatever they can get, whatever they could eat on. Uh, um, I see them on the beach all the time eating, and they, they're, I think they are eating the goose tongue and the beach asparagus and and maybe even some of the popweed or the the bull kelp. I know up at Etlin Island, <clears throat> when they brought in uh, transplants to elk, mm-hmm. they have found that the elk really like the bull kelp. So they they would come down and they'd be all over the beaches eating the bull kelp. And they are thinking that maybe that is why this here group of elk here have some record size antlers. Really? And getting minerals and stuff from the minerals, yes. And and they do. They won't allow those antlers to be entered in or counted within any of their Boone and Crockett. Because it's introduced or something? Experimental. They call it experimental herd. Really? Yeah. You know, those elk, like, Edelin's the one they swim off when they come to Prince of Wales, right? Correct, yes. Well, they they swim, they they were transplanted only on Edelin Island in the area there, but since then they migrated over into, uh, what's that other island? I want to say Samobia. But, and now you can't hunt these, the, the, on both of those islands, Etlin and Samobia, it, it's only a drawing for, for elk. Yeah. And, uh, but if they make it to this island, you can kill them on a deer tag. A non-resident can kill it. I don't know what a resident is, but a non-resident, if you see an elk on this island, a deer tag is all you need to hunt that elk. Is that true with yeah, you? They, should, they keep make they keep liberalizing it. It used so to be how like much, how much was your deer tag? Because when a I deer talk, tag here for non residents, one hundred and fifty bucks. Okay, because I, when I talked to them here, I, I was just checking in it, into that just for you, um, because uh, and they talked about how it would be I think two hundred and fifty dollars for you to get a permit to get an elk on this island yeah they keep but it's not a drawing yeah they keep changing it man like they keep making it more and more easy 
Well, it's probably because it's, they're, they're becoming thicker and they thicker. They don't want them to get a, to get a well, foothold, yeah. Until they fully understand what type of impact they would have on the, on the uh, uh, local deer population, the Sitka deer, uh, blacktail. So until then, I think they want to be cautious about allowing them to spread. And they are spreading. On the north end of the island here, there's a pretty good uh, a herd that was established in there. Yeah, I'd like to get in get, after those things, man. They, yeah, and there, there was two. There was a uh, Roosevelt elk and the Rocky Mountain. Rocky Mountain introduced. And I, I couldn't, I don't know the difference between either one of them. You know, if I if I was the elk, it's an elk. You you might be able to tell the difference. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's some on the extremes on a big grown up one. I can look at them and tell just on just sort of like the way they're shaped. You know what I'm saying? They're like stubbier. Um, just for background, I, I always tell the story that when I, the way I met Ron, like I I wouldn't have met you. If it weren't for you giving my brother Danny a jar of smoked octopus. I don't know how that was. Because that, you, he came to your house year, years well, he ago. Actually, he actually... In 2002. Right, right. He and, came to your house and you drove him around while they were doing some work. Right. When I went, when you I, sent him home with a jar of smoked octopus. He brought that jar of smoked octopus to my house to share it. I ate the smoked octopus. It was the best thing I ever had. And I said, I want to meet the dude that made that smoked octopus. So that's how you got up here the following year then? We came up to fish. Right. And I thought of you. And before, I, I didn't know your name, but I called you the smoked octopus guy. Smoked octopus guy. <laughs> Ron does a lot of shrimp trapping. Uh, explain shrimp trapping and explain how you get an octopus in there now and then. Well, the trap is big enough. And, I, and actually, I had some octopus in there that were pretty good size. And, of course, the the entry holes on a shrimp trap are, for the most part, about two inches across, maybe, round. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and... The size octopus that I got in that trap there, I just, I have to think how, how do they get in there? But yeah, because the thing's 30, 40 pounds that get in there. Oh, absolutely. And their head is as big as yours. I mean, it's as big as a human head at that point. And he just, I, I don't get it either how they get in there. No. And, and they get in there because they want to eat the shrimp, right? Right. The base of their tentacle is actually about the size of what would slide through there so they have the the tentacles plus their body so they have to they have to probably do it slow and and squeeze in there but i guess they do it i mean they do it that way yeah shrimp trap like picture it in your mind like like picture oh man like a like a bushel basket that's quite a bit bigger than a bushel basket and but same basic shape and uh like a compressed cylinder you know and you put bait in there. You usually use salmon parts, heads, whatever, fish heads, clean fish, and you put halibut head or salmon head in there. Now, I don't I, uh, In my shrimp pots, I don't use halibut carcasses. It doesn't seem to 
work as well as it does with the uh, salmon salmon heads. salmon heads or carcasses. So that I I want to when I put my pot, I want to be as efficient as I can because yeah. obviously the uh, price of fuel is a, a issue. So when I set my pots, I want to be very efficient and. Uh, I learned um, over time, you know, when they call hanging bait. Yeah. Well, you don't ever want to hang bait in your pot. Hang it from the top down. Yeah. What are you talking about? Is uh, let me let me finish just to, let me, let me I want to get this. I just want to explain just to people a picture what we're talking about. It's like a cylindrical trap, and it has funnel shaped entries on it. So you know the shrimp can kind of. He wants to get in there, and he finds his way through his little funnel entries, and it's harder for him to get out. It doesn't prevent him from getting out because you see him squirting out of there all the time, but it, it generally holds him in there. And these shrimp are big. Like the ones you target are called spot shrimp, big-ass shrimp, deep, cold water, and they will go and feed off salmon heads or just carcasses, you know? And uh, you set in between 30 and 50 fathoms. A fathom six feet, so deep water. Well, actually, different areas cause you to fish at different depths. So, wherever wherever I find, so if I move into area with my pots and I have ten pots, I want to set them in varying de uh, various different depths. So I want to spread out and try to find where I get the best pots, where the the depths that they're fishing best at. <clears throat> In certain areas, you might find around 40 fathoms is effective, and that's the best. Other areas, it could be 60. And where I'm at now, that's the case. About 60, 62 is what I target now. So 360 feet of water. Right, yeah. And it's... And what were you saying about hanging bait? You don't like the name hanging bait? Hanging bait means you're just taking a carcass. Like, people use different baits for shrimp. Like, you can take this stuff, like, looks like dog food. It's actually made, like, a commercial bait. Looks like dog food. You fill it full of a little can. But that's all shit you got to buy, you know? Hanging bait, that just means, like, a carcass, right? You put it on a skewer, like, on a Looks like a souped-up uh, safety pin. Yeah, it's a souped-up safety pin. So you, you pierce your fish parts and... I usually go through the 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 uh, uh, both eyes and the head, and then uh, bring in the tail. So what I the reason why I do that is I don't want anything floating at the top, and that's what I'm saying. When they say hanging bait, it's a misnomer. It's not bait. Well, actually, it is floating bait. So I put my bait on the bottom of the trap so that it won't float up to the top. So if you have it on the top hanging down, then your bait's going to float up to the top, and that's all the shrimp have to do, for the most part. Sit they'll be out the trap. Sit on top of the trap outside and eat. So you're not catching the amount of shrimp you could catch if you had it on the bottom. And that's what I found I didn't know that. over time. Yeah, I'll point out, I have shrimp pots, and I don't get... A, I mean, I don't get a fraction of the shrimp that Ron gets in his pot set in the same water. Kind of pisses me off. 
But that's one thing. Yanni's got a big cold. You hear him? He got a cold out deer hunting. He's not used to being cold and wet. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. When you used to, uh, did you ever commercially shrimp? No. Well, I had a little bit, okay, and uh, it was just for a 
a couple seasons. Off nothing, your elbow. Yeah, but it, it was nothing big, you know. It qualified me for a pot fishery license, but for me, um, I'm not into that. I'm not into going out and running pot fish uh, and uh, pot fishing. So, uh, what do you mean? I just did, like you just didn't enjoy it? Well, that I kind did, of fishing. Yeah, I, I really, I really didn't. And the time of year that they set the season for is, is a bummer. Because that season there just happens to be, be executed at the time when the, the shrimp are fully egged. And everybody, or you know, that the shrimp are unise unisexed. So they both, if there's such a thing as both male and female. Hermaphroditic. Right. So they are all egg bearers. Okay. So visualize the time the time of year I start shrimping in, in June or July. You as personal use? Yes. Or like subsistence use? Well, as my gathering. You yeah. Know, I don't like the word subsistence. But, so I just call it uh, use of the resource or uh, customary and traditional use. So this... Uh, <clears throat> This uh, sh shrimping, when I shrimp, maybe 1%, if that, are egged. But if you go, come into October, starting in, in late September, they all become started to get become egged. And it's going to turn it around to where upwards of 75 to 80% are egged. Yeah. And it, it it bothers me that this here is allowed to go on. In fact, it was this way in British Columbia. And it became problematic uh, to the quantities of shrimp. I mean, they they started dropping and, and they figured out why. So what they did is modify their seasons to I think they start in April so they're all spawned out they're already hatched so you're not taking a shrimp out loaded you're waiting until it's yep. uh, hatched and by doing that they're having a pretty good uh, season down there for, for their commercial guys another thing they've been doing down there is they would uh, they wouldn't go back and fish it an area until after three years gone by. So they'll fish this one area, let's say uh, 2001. They won't go back to that same area until about 2004. So what they do is send their fleets out to a different area. Let everything rebound. Everything rebound, no chance of it uh, be becoming damaged. And... <clears throat> Everybody, all of your consumer groups, whether it be commercial or or personal use or sport or anything, have a better catch rate, a better success at their ability to get shrimp. Yeah. So here, I've been I've been trying to convince a, 
a biologist in Ketchikan, to drop the season down a little bit, let it rebound. I've had commercial uh, shrimp fishermen say they should do this. They've noticed the catch declining. Well, sure, they did. And and a lot of them just, they can't bring it upon themselves to even go out there and fish it. But does that mean it's going to rebound? Maybe not. There's other people that come in here and fish. Maybe they don't know the area is here. But every time a person moves in, he doesn't come in with one pot. He comes in in 100. And some of them have 120 pot, 120, 125 pot permit or license. So even by that, even by coming in and experimenting and stuff like that, you're still catching fish and removing them out that are fully eggs. So, how do you describe the area where shrimp? How do you describe an area where you like to set for shrimp? Well, like what are they looking for? Because it just seems almost kind of arbitrary. I'm sure it's not. I find the areas that I like to fit, uh, set my pots. <clears throat> You could see on your sounder the colors, and whether the co colors are darker or mm -hmm. more color there. With that's, a denser bottom. With a denser bottom. That seems to me that you have better success with that situation. And if there's no color in there or very little, and you could see a little bit, I find that to be a real muddy bottom. And <clears throat> I've brought some pots up after setting there, you know, and it just covered with that clayish type mud. And I had rocks up on top of it, everything. And I don't know what was going on. Rocks there. on top of the trap? Uh, rocks. I mean, uh, mud type rocks. And I think probably when I was pulling it, maybe it shoveled some up. But. That tells me then the uh, uh, bottom is pretty deep in that mud. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's the place where they spawn. I don't know. But uh, you don't have a, a real uh, success rate of catch there uh, because of that. And I know that when I bring my pot up, that their mud really has a bad smell. Phosphorus. So, bad smell. Yeah. 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 So explain what you do, like when you catch the octopus, how do you make the, how, how you prepare the octopus? And I know that you turn, the, when you catch him, you turn his head inside out. Like turn the mantle inside out. Well, that's part of, part of how you uh, kill him. But I mean, I like to, to remove the mantle as soon as possible. And, and uh, You don't cut that meat up. I do, and I have, and I will, yes. But... Um, for the uh, smoked ox octopus in a jar, I just tend to use the tentacles, mm -hmm. which makes better uh, texture. Oh, it's everything, amazing. yeah, everything down. So when I when I uh, when I get that, uh, I put it in a bucket. You can still see, even with the head off, that tentacles are moving around. They're still. Yeah, trying to crawl out of the bucket. So, so after I get back, let's say after I get back, then what I do is I I, I cut away each tentacle and then with a suction cup still on it and stuff like that, I put them in my sink and then I take the hide off. 
after I get the hide off. How you do that? Boil it off or skin it off? I skin it off. Uh, and I found that if you take and you have a stainless steel sink there, and, and if it's not been frozen or cooled too much, you could put the suction cups on there and it's, they stick to the side. So then you could take your other hand and pull that hide. And it stretches out, I mean, quite a ways. So and you do that, and at the same time, you sit down there and cut your with your knife all the way down. You, it, it removes pretty easy. It doesn't remove everything but you have, because you have a little bit around tentacles, but I don't want to remove that because are the suction cups. I don't want to remove that because I don't want to lose any of the suction cups. That's all part of the... Good part. Good part, you know. So, so you skin each arm out. I skin each These arm. These arms might be four feet long, three feet long. Right, might be. But uh, it doesn't matter on the size or anything like that. It's just I want to get the skin off of it, the hide off of it as much as I can. Then I put it into uh, boiling water. And I bring it back to a roll boil. And I, I'm talking vigorous roll boil. And um, allow that to boil away and keep it in there for about 30 minutes. And any other fish you do this to is going to toughen it. Or, or fall, have it fall apart eventually. Uh, oh, one or the other. But yeah, it ain't going to get tasty. On, well, on on... The octopus there, it actually it tenderizes it. So after that, then I take it out, and then is the time that I cut them up into the size pieces I want. And then, then we go to a brine, and I use a, uh, a dry brine. It's uh, four parts uh, brown sugar to one part salt. I, I, I don't want to use a lot of salt in there because the octopus meat. Uh, really draws the salt out faster than any, okay. any of the sugar. So uh, I, I, do, I, I go a four-to-one brine. And then uh, once that's brined enough, which doesn't take very long at the all. The pieces, not the whole arm, but you got it cut up. I got it cut up to yeah. already the size of like cut of up a hot dog for a little kid. Chunks right, like that. Yeah. right. And, and the, that's the pieces that are going to go into the jar. So it's already to go into the jar. What about smoking? smoking? Oh, you smoking? Oh, no, after smoking. But I mean, so once you're doing that, then I, then we take them out, and I say we. The wife, my wife is either doing it or assisting me in yeah. doing it, and uh, she is getting pretty good at it, probably better than me. You know, ladies are good cooks. Well, it's true. Not mine. Not yours, huh? She don't like to cook. Well... We got a modern. I live in a modern family, man. You do. Yanni lives in a modern family. I know. I think your brother does too. Huh? He lives in a modern family. Right. Who cooks more than your family, Giannis? You do the most. Between my wife and I, yeah, I do. Did you know that that's how shit is now around? How would I know that? I don't know. Just talking to guys like young yeah, guys. Well, yeah, but I've I've noticed I've noticed a little bit with uh, your brother when I whenever I travel north. I go out for, uh, to his, their place for dinner, and yeah, he's doing some. He's doing the cooking, but I didn't know that was all the time. Constantly, it's more and more dudes like more and more dudes nowadays, especially guys I know that hunt. Um, 
they always cook. So do you think uh, you think that it's the a woman that is uh, becoming uh, uh, more uh, lazy? Not lazy. I wouldn't Ladies say, are getting lazy. No, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say lazy. I would say smarter. Ladies, <laughs> I honestly don't I, know what it is, man. Well, I don't know. I've, I I could cook, and I have from time to time, and it's probably rare that I do, but sometimes I do. Um. Well, I, I interrupt you to talk about the problem with, uh, not the problem. I actually, I'm, I'm joking. I prefer it that way. I like to cook. Uh, so you got the octopus smoked. Well, I got the octopus sectioned and brined. So I take it out of the brine and I wash it off. So I get all of the brine that's attached to it off. And then from there, then I go out, I put it on my uh, smoking racks and I let it uh, tack up, become tacky. That's uh, to me. That's the most important part of smoking than any other of your brining or what type of you know what type of uh, wood you're going to use to smoke. It yeah, it's a must. You have. What's to, the name of that? that pel- it's a pellicle. Pellicle. It forms yeah. a pellicle. Yeah. So. Once that's formed, then you can fire up your smoker and get it going. And we don't, because it's going to be jarred, you don't want to oversmoke it because the jarring process enhances the intensity of the smoke. So just by doing a, a real light smoke, uh, it would so you're not trying better. to cook it in there because you already boiled it. It's already safe to eat, right? That's right. Yeah. It's, it's safe to eat, and um, but you don't want to oversmoke it. It's it's a must because even your salmon, you have to be real careful because it might look good. It might be good to eat then, but when you go to put it in the jars and in through a pressure cooking. Yeah. It, it tends to really enhance that smoke flavor, and it might even come out of there looking a little bit different, a little bit more dark mm-hmm. than you would like to see, and it might be coming out a little bit more dry than you would like to have. You'd think in a jar and stuff like that wouldn't be dry, but I've had some come out uh in a less desirable condition. Well, that's one of the weird things I noticed when you smoke and stuff. Like when you smoke, when you smoke and jar salmon, when we're saying jar, we're talking about putting it in, you like mason jars or curr? Or it, you know, it, it, it really doesn't matter anymore now. Yeah. I used to like, uh, or bell. Ball. Ball. Ball, yeah. Yeah, no. I used to like, like the ball because they had a different, uh, membrane on their ceiling jar, t- uh, the, the, the tops, top. um, than they, the, the cur did. And the cur had more like a paper uh, deal, t- gasket like to, to yep. seal the product. And I just didn't, it didn't feel comfortable with me. So 
But now they're all now they're more of the same. I think they're all they they run all that same uh, type uh, rubberized membrane in there, so it's more safe. I think that way. Well, the thing I was say is what I noticed when when you do when you smoke the octopus and when you smoke some of your salmon and then jar it, you have like a like there's air in the jar, not air, but there's a vacuum. I mean, it's not full of liquid. Like you could take your smoked octopus and rattle that shit around like a like a rattle inside there. Yes, and you don't need any liquid in there. And if it, that's one thing good about the 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 jar. And I started using jars, and it was by accident. I used to use cans, steel cans, steel cans, and then you had to go through and use a jar or a can sealer. Yeah, my brother Danny has one of those steel can well, makers. I ran out. I ran low on cans one time, and I still had some fish. So. I had some jars and lids, and I put, put them in there, and I pressure cooked them in the same batch. I mixed them, intermixed them, put them in there, run them through it, but I noticed something that I probably would never have noticed because of that, because now it's the same heat, the same length of time, everything, but the product came out of the jar a lot better than out of the can. And when I seen that, I opened up a can in a jar. Yeah. And I put them out. And it's it was obviously different, a different texture, a different flavor, everything. And the jars were a lot better. So I, I so started... you switched to glass. So I started, yeah, I went and I switched to it. Now, <clears throat> also the... Jar is what they call self-venting. And a lot of people don't realize that on that can sealer, you have the numbers. So what you're supposed to do is you go and you set that uh, numbering sequence there, run your uh, can and seal it to the first portion, to the number two. Mm-hmm. Take it out, set it aside, do the next one. Now you have to back it up to one again and do that and keep on doing this until you get enough. Then you run it through your pressure cooker for about uh, and reach uh, your 10-pound uh, pressure uh, and bring it up for about, oh, maybe 10 minutes, 15 then shut your uh, pressure cooker down. Take those cans out. Now you have to hot, handle them when they're hot. Then you start from the number two and finish sealing them. That's how that works? That's how it's supposed to work. Nobody uses that. Nobody understands why, but that's part of the venting pro- process. In other words, if you run your sealer through number one and then run on to number two, you're not allowing that, that can to vent properly. Yep. So that's why they do it that way. That's why it's recommended that way. So on a jar, it's automatic. It's self-venting. And that's a lot of the reason why it's a better product. Yeah. And I took one down to one of the local uh, fish processing plants in Ketchikan. One of my jars down. A glass jar. That was full. It had salmon. Salmon. Yeah, sake in it. And I asked the guy, did you catch sockeye here? Are there any runs around here, sockeye runs? Well. On the island? There are. Yeah. Yes, there are. 
several in various state of whether they're outfished or overfished and stuff. And, yeah. and most of your streams, mostly all the streams, sockeye streams, are taking a hit. They have taken a hit. Is that right? Yeah. It's, they really need, they're in bad need of some type of enhancement program or a back off from the commercial fisheries. Yeah. I think our, our, uh, our fisheries in Alaska, and I'm, I'm getting off the subject again, it's tough to stay on it, but... I'll bring you back. Well, our fishery in Alaska, the Board of Fish, the court ruled here about 19, I think it was 80-something, 84, maybe sometime in that area, that the Board of Fish has ultimate authority. Since that ruling came down, the Board of Fish does not have to listen to biologists. So if a biologist comes out and say, don't open this, it's going to hurt and damage that uh, resource, they don't have to listen to them. And <clears throat> I have to ask... Because a bunch <clears throat> of other interests all have their ear. Well, they yeah. might be like serving other interests. Mm, like yes. Financial interests or whatever. No, no, th that's true. And... Uh, and I think that's what happened. Another important thing about this is that they have one board of fish in Alaska. And it will meet down in southeast Alaska once every three years. So you have three regions. Uh, so you have the western, uh, central, and southeast. So at any given time, and this is, this is the problem, at any given time, anybody that, uh, the, the majority of the people voting on uh, open, opening or a closure of uh, uh, a fish season, they're not stakeholders. So it's easy for them to say, well, it's not going to affect me. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and open it. I'll vote the way you want me to. And that, I think, is the worst thing we have going for us. So I've made suggestions on all levels of government to do away with this here uh, statewide board of fish and go regional. Have a board of fish just for the southeast region. That way you have people that have a stake in it. And it's everybody local, local expertise. Local expertise, local knowledge, and they have a stake in it. And not only that, if they make the bad decision, they can't blame it on somebody up north. Yeah. You know, and maybe they'll make a better decision that way. But when you have two-thirds of that board voting on it that aren't even from the area, it's easy for them to say, yeah, but they voted on it. Yeah, yeah. See? I, no. I had nothing to say about it. It was like limited It wasn't me, in other words. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'd, I'd like to get that fixed. So we're going to go back to what again? Oh, so. oh I want to, <laughs> So I bring my jar. So you jars. brought your can of sockeye salmon. I brought my can of sockeye salmon to the local processing That plant. you caught and smoked yourself. You caught and canned yourself. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't in a jar, and I was curious. 
And there's a way, they have a method in there to check at any given time the pressure in a can or the suction in a can. I think they, they call it the, the mercury pressure. So I asked the fellow there if he could test this. And he said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, did you do this at home? Yes. Well, and then he went through a big speech. He says, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what. You guys, we have special equipment here. And our equipment is that just before that can is sealed, we have a vacuum that vacuums out all the air. So we'll get nine pounds of mercury pressure in a can. And that's all you're going to get is about three pounds, maybe at the most three and a half. I says, oh, okay. Could you check mine, though? Yeah. So you went in and checked it, put the pin in, and you know, into the lid, and it went right away to 29 mercury. And what is three times? Yeah. <laughs> what his is? What theirs is? And he was puzzled. You did this at home? And I says, yeah. Amazing. We only get nine pounds, and you got 20. Well, what is it? What is what? Why is it more pounds? You just got it. Because I, like I said, and I, I, I'll reiterate, the jarring method is self-venting. So when it's self-venting, it gets that to a precise venting thing. It's not a guess. It's not a vacuuming out. Yeah. It's actually in there, and it, it, uh, as it heats, it releases all the air in there, and then when it collapses and seals. It's perfect. It's, Yeah. It's as well as you're going to get vented. Yeah. Do you ever jar? Do you ever uh, jar halibut? Can and jar halibut? I've canned and jarred both halibut, yes. Now, you, okay, you've always fished halibut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That How old were you when you caught your first halibut? When I caught my first halibut, I think I was about eight. Eight and a half, something like that, maybe. Um, yeah, I just was eight. Um, so I was down at, at New England Fish uh, Docks. I was down there to cut halibut cheeks. And yeah, I went, let me explain that, what that means, why you were doing that and what that means. Well, I went down there to cut halibut cheeks so I could just sell them to the restaurants. We used to uh, go down there and cut about 20 pounds of halibut cheeks a day and then go around the restaurants and sell it to them for 50 cents a pound. And they were tickled pink with it because they get, number one, they get it delivered. Yeah. It's very fresh. And the price was right. In the cannery, they weren't using the cheeks. At that time, no. They were not so using... So you could just go and... They didn't care. You just dig through their pile of fish carcasses and cut the cheeks out. Right. And I don't... I think to this day they're not using them. I, I think to this day they're not... not well, I can't be certain of that, but I know back when I was uh, longlining that they wouldn't pay you for the head. So when they weighed your halibut, they removed the head. So they're actually not buying the head from you. So yeah. the head belongs to you. They leave the collar on the fish, but cut it from the gill cover forward, right? Right. Yeah. And, and so that head really uh, belongs to you. And after I'm done, I might have a couple of totes there full of heads. 
So I'd just alert somebody, and I'd, I'd talk to the VFW uh, to go down there and have them cut the halibut cheeks and stuff like that, and maybe they could... When you were longlining, you do that. Right. No, this is when I was longlining. Yeah. yeah. But when you were a kid, you'd go down and cut the cheeks out. And you, How many pounds did you cut out? 20 pounds a day. Uh, that's, eight? How long did that take? Well, it didn't take long. I mean, we didn't have the best knives either, but, you know, so I'd... I'd I'd bring a paring knife from home, uh, and get down there and and get it done, and then you make we, your rounds to the restaurants and catch a can. Then we start down and make our rounds, and most of the time we sold them out. Uh, what what would you get for them? Fifty cents a pound. Uh, so I make ten dollars a day. You know. What would you do with the money? Well, that's another thing there. I I'd, I'd bring it to uh, where my mother charge our groceries and i'd just walk in there and give them 10 bucks and say here <laughs> but this is on my mom's account <laughs> i used to bring it i used to bring it home i used to bring it home to uh my mother and that was back when bingo started you know bingo bingo yeah you know bingo oh yeah yeah and the funny thing about that is that bingo was first introduced in the Ketchikan by the churches to so that it helped them raise funds. And so it started out one day a week. And then another church would bring it on. So there's two days a week. And then another church. And it's three days a week. And then somebody else would want to bring it on. And they'd have bingo in Ketchikan six days a week. And when they start that bingo... It's at 7 o'clock, it starts. But my mother and everybody else would say, no, no, I want to get the best seat, and I want to go down and get the best cards because they picked their own cards, and they like combination numbers on their cards. So they get down there a good hour ahead of time. So they're leaving right when dinner should be. Mm-hmm. So the church has helped remove the family from a home. Yes. You know, and and that upset me a little bit there because one time a week is not bad, but turned into five, six times a week is bad. And then my mother was really stretching it to pay her charge bill down at the deal. And I I heard her, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But everything that I got, every nickel dime that I could scrounge up or whatever I used to bring home here well it wasn't doing me any good I was just supplying her habit to go to bingo yeah so and I'm not talking down on my mother but that was, I could see where it was a problem and I really dearly, dearly loved my mother and she was the best lady on earth but I realized that I I got to do something different so instead of bringing it home I just go down there to the uh, grocery store and I knew the owner and I trusted him of course there was no re- no, no receipts had given I didn't even know what a receipt should have been and you yeah. said here put this on my mom's account and I your dad had passed away when you were young he'd be- yeah he passed away when I uh, when I was seven and uh, there were six of us so it was tough uh, time and but my mother uh, was also tough, and and uh, 
she kept the house together for the most part. Yeah. You know? That's a lot, man. That's a lot to put on someone. It's a lot, yeah. And we, I think we were very blessed and fortunate that my stepfather came along and they fell in love and got married. And they had one other child after that. But um, that's <laughs> that's a lot of burden. To, yeah. You know, I mean, it's something else to get married, but get married with six kids already. Oh, a lot of guys run the other direction, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyway, it worked out. It worked out good. And... Uh, I've I've been through and involved in fishing and stuff like that for a long time, and I can remember. Talk about that halibut, though, when you were cutting cheeks. Oh, yeah. So I, I was looking around. I wanted to go ahead and put a line down over the, over the dock there. <clears throat> so I started looking around the New England cannery for a, a hook, and I was finding all the hooks, most of the hooks, they didn't have a... Uh, a circle in them like hook, hook, sport hooks do. Yeah, these were all flat, and that's how they tied them on to a to a. Oh a yeah, you mean there's no eye in the hook? There was no eye in the. You got to like snell it on there. Right. Yeah. And I was young, and I didn't know anything about that. I knew how to operate a hook, you know, with a circle in it and tie a tie a knot there, but that I didn't. I couldn't figure it out. So. Eventually, I looked around, and I found one that was already tied, and then I tied a knot in that, and then I found some other line uh, long enough to where it would go down and just right on the bottom. Off the dock of the cannery? Off the dock of the cannery. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> I mean, so I'm down there, and I tied it off on a big cleat, and they had these big boat cleats, so I tied it off there. Went and cut the halibut cheeks and everything like that. And then when I was done, I went back. I grabbed that line and something heavy on it. And I started pulling it. It started jerking back. And my brother was with me, and we pulled that thing to the surface. And I said, that is too big. Now I'm looking down at this, and it's a good 40-foot drop from the dock down to the water. So there's no way are we going to get this halibut, which as near as I can remember i mean from what i know it was probably a 250 pound hell oh. <laughs> so there's no way so i let it go back down and i ran and i found the uh superintendent and i says hey i got a big halibut online down here and i don't know what i'm gonna do to get it i mean can you help us so he went down there, and we brought it up, and he seen how big it was. So he, whoa, wait a minute, you know. So he goes, rigs up one of these uh, totes. They had a, a rope tote and stuff, and put it down. This one's made out of wood, and but big enough to handle that halibut for sure. And he had a big crane to do this with, you know, and everything. So that's how we did it. And then we brought it back up, and he's operating that. And he has it dipped down in such a way so that when we got him up, we could just pull it and slide it right into it. And it landed in there, and he brought it up. I can't, I can't tell you, I can't remember how much I got for that halibut, but that's the first fish I sold. <laughs> there must have been a bunch of money, though. Well, it was, and I can't, I can't remember how much. Okay, so, but I'm, it seems to me like it was maybe $20, $25, but that's, that's a lot of money. For yeah, me, yeah. for me anyway. 
So that was a good day. I had my $10 for the cheeks and plus the halibut deal. But uh, yeah, that was good. And what, when did you start? Like, because you did a several seasons of uh, commercial halibut fishing. Right. I started there, Joan and I bought the El Sol uh, in uh, uh, 92. And that was when I went out uh, trolling and then also long line. Trolling for salmon. Right. Well, how does the long line, how's the halibut long line work? Like, how's the commercial halibut fishery work? I mean, just the mechanics of catching the fish. Well, like, how would you guys get them? You know, like, just like the actual fishing part of it. We had, uh, we were running snap on gear. It's a skate. <clears throat> I had uh, 18 skates. Each skate, I'd say, is a thousand feet long. And how many hooks you clip on that thing? <sighs> All depends on how close you want to clip them on, but uh, for the most part, I. I, it slips my mind how many per, but there's an awful lot of hooks. And uh, then you let it soak. You try to pick it, go back. But you and set pick that it. thing down like you got an anchor, like you're running on the bottom. It's not hanging, suspended, right? Anchor on the bottom, then a thousand feet of line with hooks, another anchor on the other end, and then a line goes up to your buoy. Actually, when we run them, I run about maybe six or seven skate, skates all in one row. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So you have six or seven thousand feet of hooks down there. Yeah, over a mile. All right. At what depth? A whole variety of depths. Well, actually, yeah, it's going to be a whole variety of depths because you're not going to find a stretch that long. It's all the same. Well, you'd be surprised sometimes out there. There, there are some of them like that, but uh, for the most part, yeah. And you're baiting with what? Well, you can bait for uh, with several things. Um, I. uh, I wish we could bait with salmon, but uh, and maybe some people do now. You could buy it. You could buy salmon if you could get it. You know, I mean, there are certain people that have the ability to get salmon. There's other people, you know, that have to settle for uh, herring. You settle for herring, you have to uh, brine it. Uh, yeah, because they just pick that shit right off the hook on. Uh, yeah, that's right. And then 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 you could get squid. So, what does the brining do? Makes it tougher? Firms it up. Yeah, you know, firm. so those herring, we've been using our brine. Like, I take the herring out, you know, when you buy them in the box or you buy them in those little trays, mm-hmm. I take them out and, and put down a layer of ice cream salt or rock salt, put down a layer of herring, salt, herring, salt, herring. It do, I don't think it messes. I mean, they still smell nice. They're still oily, but they just don't rot as fast, man. They stay really well, nice. And they get leathery after a while, but they still, I don't think, I mean, I'm not a halibut, but. I don't I think, think they give I, sh- care. I th- in my opinion, I think even by salting them, they, they, they fish better also because what it does, it concentrates, it shrinks it down, yeah. takes the moisture out of it, they shrinks oily, it down, man, yeah. and you get more oilier. So they release that oil off more than they yeah, would. Yeah, they smell great. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you get a hit on a smaller fish and stuff on there. He's not stripping your bait off as fast, but so, and which is something that you want to. So you could not you like you didn't were able to use just salmon bellies or fillets cut up into strips. You guys use squid. You use could herring. you could you could use that. Uh, like I say, if you get there at the right time and stuff. But I wasn't moxy enough to. Uh, a lot of the guys 
a lot of the guys that fish that are saners themselves. So they'd go out at the end of the season, they'd get the best uh, of the chum they could, and they would freeze their own bait. Oh, see, oh, you so, 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 have a low so sale value. They, yeah, so they'd have their own uh, I, uh, freeze locker at the at at the uh, uh, cold storage or whatever, and. These are the guys that have been in it for a long time, and they know, and they're they're fishing uh, big time other fisheries. Uh, so it's what you know. Yeah. So you were using primarily herring and squid. Yeah, primarily, but at, at times I could find and locate some halibut, or not halibut, excuse me, salmon. But it's it's uh, it's something that you had to really look for and get ahead of time and of course where am i gonna freeze a bunch of this bait you know because you need huge volume a huge volume of bait you know hundreds of hooks and thousands of hooks yeah yeah so you'd run that thing out and you'd get all those hooks laying along the bottom mm -hmm. at what from what depth to what depth well I like to write right around 100 fathoms. 600 feet of water. Yeah. So you're fishing way deeper than sport fishermen are fishing. For the uh, most part. For the most part, yeah. I I don't I don't know. And we fish halibut in half that depth with a rod and reel, or even a third. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, your reels probably don't have enough line to get down. Yeah, and it's just you get weight issues and current issues, and you know. <clears throat> Yeah. Your, your bolt's over one place and your tackle's 200 yards away because the current. So you, how long would you let that thing soak then? You don't want to, uh, for, for rule of thumb, you don't want to let it soak any more than six hours. Because of sea lice, right? Yeah, you have a sea lice problem. And if you get too much sea life, lice in there, uh, you're going to have... Uh, issue that it's going to be no more number one grade. It's going to be number two, and the prices really drop drastically. If they and see I, those lice on the fish, yeah. And I went in. I I went in to deliver my load one time, and I went up, and this guy here said, oh, "That's number two. So I I grabbed it. I got my fillet knife out, and I flayed the thing out, and everything. And laid that flesh down there, and says, "Where? Why is this number two? Well, it's around the uh, outer fins there. It's eaten away. Do you sell those fins? Yeah. No. Well, again, why is this number two? So he had to give me number number one price, but what he didn't give me." A number one price on I say okay fine I'll bring it back down the boat then oh you're not gonna sell it and I said no I'd rather give it away than get screwed by you I'd feel better so that's what I did that's what I would do you know how many like when you pull it up how many halibut might be on there again like how many might you deal with in a day <laughs> Oh, maybe roughly around maybe four or five hundred. 
individual uh, yeah, fish. Right. And uh, and in drought. a day, in a day, you're going to say in a day, but we have a 24-hour opening. We're fishing around the clock. Oh, you might only get 24 hours to do it. That, well, that's what it was. Uh, they had some some openings were 48 hours, but most of, most of the last ones were 24. Your whole season. Yeah. Well, twice a year, 24. Let's put it that way. But yes. And you wow. can keep a boat and maintain a boat and maintain a license and maintain all the gear in order to fish 48 hours. Well, again, you're 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 also fishing. Your boat is fishing other fisheries. Gotcha. Okay, but for the most part, no, you wouldn't be able to. And if you're only fishing long line and halibut because the season is too too short, so they had you coming and going, and it just—I don't know who was doing the selection as to what day the opening would be. Yeah. But whoever that was was very accurate on picking it the worst possible time of the year f- because of the weather. So the last halibut opening that we had, that I fished, and the last one we that was had, I mean, they quit after that, went to IFQ. We, I was fishing the west side of Forrester Island. And the, both Canadian U.S. weather said that... Uh, I was blowing 35 knots when we put uh, later gear. But we did it because both Canadian and U.S. said that the wind was supposed to subside and drop back. Well, it didn't. It increased. It went up to 50, and which made it almost impossible to get out there and fish. I mean, 50 knots, 20-foot seas, <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, but but yet you feel you have to. But while we were out there, one of my deckhands, actually I popped a hydraulic hose. And when that happens, your deck becomes extremely unsafe and, and uh, slippery. So Because it's hydraulic fluid. Right. So I just pulled everybody into the wheelhouse and we went in into the lee of the uh, Forester Island there and cleaned, tried to clean that up and fix the hydraulic hose, but tried to clean the deck up. I mean, we done a pretty good job on it. And But while we were out there, the one guy, one of my crew members slipped and said he hurt his back. And he didn't really look really, really good i mean he had some discomfort it was obvious in his pulse so got a hold of the coast guard let them know and uh, they came down to the island with the plane tree and i could see him there but they wouldn't get within a mile of the island they were afraid of the rocks or something like that but i tried to explain to him you come straight in you bring that ship right into me if you want but they didn't want to do it, so they launched a hard-bottom rubber dinghy. And I cautioned them when they come up because during the blow and stuff like that, I ripped off a uh, rub rail on the starboard side of my vessel, so there was some exposed uh, screws that were in there and stuff. And I told them, you come up on my starboard side, 
you're going to get a hole poke, poked in your boat. And I says, come on to my port side. What do they do? They come on my starboard side. And it's rocking and rolling out there. And they brought out their corpsman or whoever he was, but he he done some checking, and it was his idea that they were going to go and air medevac him to Sitka. And I says, okay, but you're not going to take him in that hard bottom skiff, are you? In the seas back to your boat with a bad back or a, a damaged back, injured back. Oh, no, we'll do that. And I says, no, I can take the old soul, go in the lee of the uh, your ship. Then we do the transfer in the lee. Means that your ship doesn't want to come here, in here to get in the lee of the island. So anyway, I couldn't talk them out of that. And uh, so that's what they did. And they aromatized them off. All this time it was taken, I was uh, having to be laid up and stuff. And so by that time, we were done there. And I went out and I had just enough time to get all my gear pulled in. And I didn't have enough time to reset because oh. yeah it was so you got I was, one set for the whole day right and I was right down I mean I went right down to the wire and get my last skate on board I mean it was close because they're pretty sticklish about that and if you're flying over and you're still pulling gear after that's down they'll they'll side you, that, you know. was that your last year doing it that was my last year doing it and um, all of the years that I fished, they didn't count that towards an IFQ. Uh, in fact, I think they stopped counting. That's the quota system. Right. That's I have, uh, I have individual fishing quota. Yeah. So like, just for listeners, like rather than, a lot of fisheries have gone to this. They used to have these gangbusters seasons where they opened it for some set time. Like Ron's saying, regardless of weather, if you want to make a play, you got to go out and do it when they say to go do it. Later, they came up with a system, much safer system. I'm sure there's cons to it, but one of the pros is much safer because you'll tell a vessel that's licensed what he's allowed to catch, and he's more at his leisure to catch it. <clears throat> well, no, another important faction to that, too, is... <clears throat> When they went to the system, I normally fished up there at uh, Coronation Island. When they went to the individual qu quota? No, well, before that. I, that was my normal spot. The only reason why I went to Forrester Island is my brother, Ivan. He was on board. And he says, we got to try that. We got to go out there. It's going to be good, blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, but... For the most part, I fished up there at Coronation Island, and it's my uh, uh, belief that what, when they went to the uh, individual quota system, they use your fish tickets to establish the amount of quota you're going to get. Yeah. Okay? And each fish ticket also puts down what area you got your fish from. So most of the guys would go to their... Same area, over and over. They're, yeah. they're comfortable that way because they know by going to new areas and stuff like that, you can get into all kinds of 
problems and stuff like that, not not knowing that there is uh, coral trees down there and you're going to damage and ruin a lot of gear and maybe possibly lose some. So it's good that you go back to your same area because you know, okay, it's free of coral and the halibut are there and uh, several things and not a lot of bycatch. <clears throat> so <clears throat> that's that's what you got to watch for too, you know. I mean, yeah. they only allow us to keep like 10% bycatch on your yellow eye or your lingcod. So if you get into a lot of them when you first start, how much are you going to keep, you know? So you have to discard it. The bycatch. Right, because you don't know. I mean, they have this here magic number, you know. And back then, back then they didn't have the safeguards or a way of, uh, or, or a procedure or, or a law stating that, okay, now I think they have to go ahead and at least bring them back down or they have a way of uh, removing the air out of uh, yellow eyes stomach yeah. so that his survivability after being caught drastically increased. Yeah. So like a, a, a round of a yellow eye, yellow eye rockfish and, and rockfish along with some other species don't have a good way of regulating uh, for pressure. So when you're fishing in, even in 300 feet of water, 250 feet of water and you catch a yellow eye and they're on bottom fish you crank him up in a hurry to the surface. By the time he gets to the surface, he's cashed out. I mean, he's got like his stomach hanging out of his mouth because their swim bladder erupts with the alleviation of pressure and shoves it out of their mouth. For that reason, you're not supposed to size grade uh, rockfish. You're not supposed to, you're not allowed to be like, oh, I'll hang on to him and keep, or I'll throw him back and keep fishing because the thinking is you're going to kill the thing. For a long time, people would, take a needle and, and try to puncture that swim bladder. And you can do it, if done right, you can do it and let the pressure out and put the fish back. But people tend to puncture the stomach, which is fatal for the fish. So now there's these release devices. We've been messing around with them. Where you pull that fish up, you put this release device on there and send that son of a gun right back to the bottom. And apparently you have very high survivor rates doing that but still even with that you can't size grade rockfish like if you catch one and you're going to continue fishing rockfish that fish goes in the boat you don't throw them back and continue to fish and well, the thing you're talking <clears throat> about too yellow eye as a non-resident i'm allowed two yellow eye annually one a day two annually but you guys would get big hauls of them well in a commercial deal now i <clears throat> i was fishing up there and i got in close too close to the rock one time big mistake and i got a massive amount of yellow eye and link cut so i moved away from there fast because i i didn't like what i was seeing you know i mean you're discarding you have to discard it back and they're all floating some of them for whatever reason uh could go back down but for the most part they're just sitting there floating until, yeah. until they're done or tell some critters get them, or eagle, or whatever. But uh, I didn't feel good about that. <clears throat> so I'd move off of it and avoid that area as much as possible. But um, 
as I knew what I was catching and stuff like that, then I felt comfortable with keeping them on board so that I don't don't go over that 10% yeah. because when you go over it, then they could fine you. And the fines are pretty steep. And uh, you, had, you had a lot of uh, people viewing this uh, fishery. So that when I go into the port and I eventually get under the... Uh, hoist uh, to be offloaded then they'd have somebody from use the coast guard or somebody in there with a uh, oh you know that uh, with a type deal where they use the measure your feet when you go get a new pair of shoes yep. well they had that set up and they had it set up at 32 inches and under ideal conditions and stuff like that they'd pull it through well if that halibut didn't meet that then you're fined. So, oh, so you're, you're supposed to turn out any halibut under 32. Under 32 is supposed to be out. Was now, there a cap on the top end for egg-bearing females? Like, were you allowed to keep 300-pound halibut? You were allowed to keep them at back then. Um, and I, right now, I, 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 I've been out of it so long, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what their uh, limit is on the high end. But um, it, this... Uh, the system here, when they when when they go in, they closely, you know. I mean, like say you're a sixteenth of an inch under, you know, they'll get you. But so uh, I just put a mark on it at thirty-two and a quarter. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, let's let's face it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna waste that. You're you're tossing. You're turning. You don't have the best light. You're been up for. Uh, already maybe 40 hours, you know, without sleep because you have that baiting, getting ready, going, yeah. fishing. So you don't have a lot of things in your favor for getting it right or very accurate. So to be on the safe side, I just marked a quarter inch over. Um, Throw anything that was... Right, uh, and and they do. They they closely do that. I mean, they'll sit down there and have two or three people there with their uh, shoe shoe uh, measuring device. And uh, so, how many years did you do that for? I just I just did it for the uh, uh, three three four years. Did you make money? You did. You made money, but. Uh, it, you, you didn't you didn't get rich yeah. I mean you made an, you, uh, let's put it this way I always made expenses <laughs> yeah but uh, and even on that trip that I only had one pole you know but that, that again was you know it happened now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. So when you went, when you quit doing that and you went back to just fishing halibut with a rod and reel, did it feel funny? Like, did it feel like, because here you are catching hundreds of halibut and all of a sudden you're back out, just a guy catching halibut for his own freezer? No, it didn't feel funny because I was doing that before I went uh, long lining, you know? So I've always, I've always fished at rod and reel, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was easy to get back into it that way. But, uh, did you miss the commercial stuff or were you just done with it? 
Well, at times I did, but they had it so goofed up. I don't, you know, I didn't miss it probably as much as I I would have if everything was going rosy and fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, going out there in their 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 fishery, you know, the 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 fish, the halibut, is monitored and controlled under treaty. So you have a treaty with. Uh, uh, Canada and the United States on the on the halibut that is caught within yeah, their big, waters and ours. migratory fish. Right, within their water and ours. So uh, we don't have 100% a say over what the season's going to be or anything like that. I mean, you could probably put in a suggestion to the North Pacific Fisheries Management or the... Uh, halibut commission but uh how far that is that gonna go you know yeah how many years did you do salmon for <laughs> about about the same little longer um but i seen handwriting on the wall um uh, things with regards to, to what well with regards to the price that we're, i was getting at the uh cold storage or the uh canneries and you're fishing product. salmon with hooks, not nets. You're trolling salmon, right? But but you're you're sitting down there, and they're giving the same price over and over and over again. The price never seemed to fluctuate very much. It did at the beginning of the season, and if you were if you were fishing winter kings, the prices were up then. And I I I never did go up travel. I, I was I, I was going to try to go up to Sitka and fish that out of there for Winter Kings because of the price. You get a better price or you get a more fairer price. And I, I don't to this day. I wonder why it didn't follow through. Why, why shouldn't there be a good price for King Salmon all season? You, know? you fish Kings around here. Hmm? You fish Kings around here instead? Well, around the, uh, yeah, around Prince Wales Island, you know. The West Coast was my favorite. Spot for kings. That's where I done most of my fishing. How were the season? How many days a year were you doing that? Well, the king season fluctuated uh, for the amount that was allocated, and uh, it varied. It went went between two days to five days. Opening season, um, and then. After that, that would close down. Uh, you'd go ahead and fish coho for a while. Even that would close down for a short period of time uh, in August, you know. So you had your various fishings, but the one thing that was discouraging to me is that all your gear prices, your fuel prices, your oils prices, your hydraulic fluids, uh, all your part prices, everything was always going up. Yeah. Always going up with the cost of living and everything like that. It increased and went up. But your salmon never seemed to increase that much, that fast. So it was costing the fishermen uh, you were losing a lot by that because of the prices for the fish that you were getting was remaining at a certain level, the same level. And uh, so I says, nah, this isn't for me. I just, I, I'm not one that I like to be taken advantage of. 
So I'm not going to hang in there and allow it to happen, you know. Um, it's just me. <laughs> Did you buy the El Sol just for those that purpose, to do halibut and do salmon? That's correct, yes. I got into it. I always wanted to go back and do try commercial. And uh, I did, you know. I I started commercial fishing with my grandfather when I was about eight. And uh, he always fished the West Coast. And he was always the first one out, last one in. So I went out there and he showed me how to gill and gut them and ice them and everything. And that was my job. And it was a hot hot day then I mean uh, time of year it was like sort of like what we've, we've had here this summer hardly a breeze and it's down there and you're out there getting re- double reflection from the water up and you're getting really whammed with uh, that and I, I'd go down below after up there uh, getting them and gilling them and gutting them and getting enough and then I'd go down below to ice them and as I was down below there, it's just nice and cool, pleasant. And when I was down there, I noticed uh, three or four coils of line back in the back, uh, underneath the poop deck there. And I said, that's, uh, looks almost like a hammock, I figured, you know. <laughs> so I hop up there, I hopped up there and lay down and see how comfortable it was. Well, I fell asleep. And the fish started stacking up. My grandfather says, hmm. So he went and looked down the fish hole. He didn't see me there. So I figured I was in the forecastle. So he went down the forecastle. I wasn't there. Came back, yelled down the fish hole. I didn't answer. So he put the dreaded call out to the fleet that had fallen over. Of course, I don't know how much of the fleet was out there looking for me and stuff, but I'm pretty sure a lot of them were. And I'm all the time I was down there sleeping. And to this day, I could not tell you how long I was asleep down there. But I could say one thing. When I did come up out of the <laughs> down below in the hold, my grandfather was coming out of the wheelhouse. He had one foot in and one foot out. you know, And he's a big man. But his eyes meant me, and that was the first time in my life I ever visualized or seen that he didn't know whether he wanted to kill me or kiss me look. Yeah. And Which did he go with? I think he went uh, with a little bit of both, but uh, <laughs> he, he caught up to me eventually because it wasn't always that type of weather. So the weather had changed and became a little bit rough, and that there was my first experience with uh, seasickness. And I got seasick. So he pulls out, and back then we didn't have any plastic pails or anything like that, and so he pulled out a galvanized bucket of salt water, put it up on the hatch cover, and gave me a coffee cup, and he says, drink. And I drank. He says, more. And I drank more. Salt more. water. Yes, salt water. And I drank more. I don't know how much I drank, and all of a sudden I became deathly ill. And I know I was down on the deck, and I was rolling around like it felt like a bowl of jelly. And all of a sudden I had to let go, and I went over the edge of the boat and 
Let her fly. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. <clears throat> I'll tell you one thing. That was the first and last time in my life I was ever seasick. Really? It cured me. And I don't know whether it's a fear that I might have to drink all that salt water again or not, but it did cure me. I've never, to this day, since then, ever been seasick. I'm going to try that because I still get seasick. I'm about 50-50. Well, I think you have to have somebody bigger than you. You big old grandpa to make you do it. And I can force myself to drink salt water. Sneering at you? When I when I Drink dive it. when I'm diving yes I'll usually uh Swallow like remember some. we were up here a couple weeks ago we went looking for scallops I I got I drank enough salt water that day where I threw up a little bit not like you're talking about just little sips and it makes my you know but not like uh it just makes me kind of you know you, you kind of throw up in your mouth a little bit yeah like that yeah snorkel hanging out of your mouth well try it well you don't get seasick do you or you have know, you you do huh Tell I don't me. think so. You don't? When I was a kid, I would, we'd get seasick out on Lake Michigan. But Lake Michigan would get like six-foot waves are big in Lake Michigan, but it'd be enough to make you seasick. My kid got seasick because he wasn't looking, he didn't know to look at the horizon, you know? He's like, the sicker he got, he's five, you know? The sicker he got, the more he'd slink down the bottom of the boat. I could tell him, you got to sit up, man, and look around. Don't be looking at the boat, you know? So, Hans, what do you do when you get seasick? Look at the boat or horizon? I uh, focus on the fishing. Usually if I focus on the fishing, then I get better. But the horizon, yeah, for sure. Or I just, you know, make myself let it go, and I get better. Do you know that Giannis's woman's father is a boat maker? No, I didn't know that. What type of boats? <laughs> <laughs> they make a, um, a, uh, a deep V uh bay boat and then they make a uh flat bottom skiff is this fiberglass, fiberglass yeah. north carolina mm. not meant for rocks nope wouldn't do well up here all right so did you guys see that that boat out here that i told you about did you go look at it the japanese skiff no i found a japanese gas can yesterday you did huh? two days ago yanni found it. who found it i did Yanni found, he saw something red up in the tide rack there, went over there, and it was a gas can with Japanese script on it. And like, like, I cut that off. I cut the Japanese writing out and nailed it to a post on my shack. That's found art. You know what found art is? Yeah. yeah. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, you're, you don't do you, you don't report this stuff then? To who? There's a site that you go on and report anything that you found, and uh, oh I th- no, I, I'll put my I'll put nah, the Japanese nah, gas can. You, I found a huge bottle of uh, detergent, five gallon tank of detergent, not long ago on the beach, and I found a shrimp basket, not long ago on the beach, and my Jimmy Carter hat. A uh, Jimmy Carter hat. My huh? Jimmy Carter nuclear sub hat. Oh, okay. All right. I'm a yeah. beach combing son of a gun, man. But uh so no, but there's a Japanese boat that washed up near here. There is out there on Grendel. Um Have you gone and looked at it? I did. I went and looked at it and it's really a skookum built boat. Uh it probably came across the Pacific. 
upside down the way it sits. And uh, I say that because the uh, rails portion of the boat in areas is just pounded where it's been off and on beaches or whatever or hitting things. But for the most part, I think it's salvageable, but it does have the Japanese name on the hull itself, but somebody... How long is the boat? uh, Close to 19, 20 foot. Could you get it off there and drag it home? Well, you could at a super high tide. Is that Uh, legal? Yeah, you found it, right? Well, what I'd rather do is just go out there. I didn't get a picture of it. I'm going to go out there and get the uh, whole uh, name off of it. And there's a site that you go to. And in fact, one of the people on that site speaks and writes fluent Japanese. Oh. On the site that you are reporting into. So if you take a picture or anything, that he'll be able to decipher what it is, and and it'd be interested to find out, you know, maybe who owned that boat or who. Oh yeah, man, it'd be super interesting. Yeah, yeah. The gas can I found was busted up. That's well, cool. Yeah, it's I mean, it looks like it's been in the water a long time. Do you know they say in eighty million years that Japan will have accreted all of the Aleutians and be docked up against Alaska? Well. What what difference does that make None. today? Doesn't make any difference today. It's something to look forward to. Well, I guess. You know, Alaska I guess, originally I guess, hit. Do you know your state originally accreted and banged up against California, then rolled a transform fault to where it is now? I don't doubt that a bit. You know, I mean. <laughs> I, you can picture it. I can picture it, yes. Well, what do they say now? Your tallest mountains and your biggest valleys and stuff like that and your biggest canyons are below the water. Yeah. There's a book, there's a great trilogy written by John McPhee about geology called Annals of the Former World. And in it, he says, if I was going to sum this book up in one sentence, it would be that the top of Mount Everest is marine limestone. Wow. He also says another thing in that book that's interesting. He says, if you imagine the history of the earth as your arms spread out as wide as you can spread them, okay? He said you could remove all of human history with one stroke of a nail file. That makes our little problem seem like... uh, No, I I know that. I mean, the the earth, they date... Someone dated back to a billion years old. Yeah. That's a lot old. I think the Earth's in a midlife crisis because in four billion years, the sun's going to burn out. We're in a midlife, we're halfway, the Earth's halfway done. I told my kid the sun's going to burn out and it really affected him and I couldn't explain to him that I meant in a long time. <laughs> Shouldn't have told him that. Well, sure, you're mean. <laughs> you're mean. <laughs> uh, Yanni, what concluding thought? Yanni, you took off your Latvian power ring. Yeah, the, the uh, salt water, I think it's the salt water, the air, it uh, caused me to swell up a little bit, so it's getting a little, little snug. So. As part of being a Latvian, Giannis wears a Latvian power ring called a names. And it's something the Latvians, have we ever talked about this before? 
I think so. The Lavians stole it from the Old Testament. Or Yanni would argue the Old Testament stole it from the Latvians, where some guy had it where he's going to go kill the Latvian king. And he said, just look for the guy with the Latvian power ring. And all Latvian dudes went out and got a ring just like the kings so that no one could tell who the king was. This whole, remember the whole, you put a stripe, put a red mark on the door in the Old Testament? So Yanni, in order to protect Names, the king, wears his Latvian power ring. One time I was making a, a off-color jokes. I don't want to tell you about what, about Yanni. And he was telling me that some, one of these, the next time I make that joke, I'm going to see a flash of blinding silver <laughs> as his fist collides with my face. <laughs> <laughs> it's his names. Do I it, made up a song. It. I made up a song and be, a dance. It would be well-deserved, right? My yeah. grandmother oh, yeah. made that for me. His brother has I, one, too. And he's got a Lavian power tattoo. <laughs> I, I, think, I think, Steve, when was the last time you were ever disciplined? Oh, I'm 40 years old, man. Well, that's true. But when was the last time your when wife? I was 18, 19. Your wife? You mean never by my disciplines. dad? <laughs> oh no, my wife. Yeah, my wife has a way. Like she has a disciplinary method. You know, um, it works very well. Good. Uh, Rihanna, any concluding thoughts? Oh, another thing about the Latvian power ring. You you told me the other day you're thinking about not wearing any rings anymore. Yeah, because you swell up. No, because we who just some celebrity just got what do they call that when you your ring pulls your skin off your whole finger? Hurt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, there's a term for that. There is. Yeah, collared, sleeved. Yeah, something like that. Anyways, uh, I know quite a few guys that have you know been ha- had that happen to them or had it close to happening to them, and so instead they've just gone to a tattoo for their wedding band. I'll tell you what, I I quit wearing a wedding band, not because I'm trying to do something wrong, but for a lot of those reasons. And uh, I also, I had these watch bands, and they're all metal, mm-hmm. and then you could break them open to take them off. I know you know? About. And I, I had one of those, I'm working on my car, and I had this wrench, and I was sort of uh, tightening a post down, and somehow that shorted across to the negative. And I think it, when I came down, yep. my watch came down on the post of the negative, and I had a hold of that, and it gave you 12 volts. More well, that 12 volts with a lot of amperage. I mean. The, <laughs> I took my watch band off and I had that burn in. It was just welts all the way around. Just no kid. Yes. Yeah. And I arced mine on a battery, and I caught it on a couple of tree limbs. And I proposed to my wife that I stop wearing it. And, and she said, "No." She said, "I can get the tattoo." But I made it this far in life without a tattoo. I don't want to go get a tattoo now. I'm going to ask her if I can just start taking a magic marker every couple of days and magic markering a mark. Just before you travel, you mean? Whatever. She just likes me to have it on. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, sometimes she don't even know where hers are. I find them laying around now and then. One day I found one in her damn shoe. So you're married. She's not. Yeah. 
She's always like, oh, she got them both on, none on, one on, don't know where they are. And meanwhile, here's me, puffy old finger of the ring on it. Well, tell her you can turn that in for a... Uh, <clears throat> they actually gave this to me when I bought her ring. Nylon ring or something. I thought about getting one of those silicon <laughs> rings. She said I can do that if I want. Well, Joan had Joan had one, I think, uh, it was jade jade ring, your jade, a solid jade ring, was it? At one point in time, I think you still have it. Oh, maybe she doesn't. But it was made out of jadeite. Very expensive. But um, there's a thought too. So Yanni's gonna quit wearing the Namase, possibly. All right, Yanni, concluding thoughts. Any wrap-up questions? You'll get a chance for concluding thoughts, Ron. When? After Yanni's turn. Oh. I guess I have a concluding question. We might get squeak, be able to squeeze another hunt in. How far do we have to go up the hill so that we're not hunting like a low-end muskeg? Dude, listen, I don't believe any of that. You don't? Well, I just want to stay on everybody's right side around here. Are you on? Okay, okay. You guys know this buck Yanni killed. Personally. Okay. Did, what was his name? Did he have Babe? Was he in velvet or not in velvet? Name was Bucky. (laughs) 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 And he was not in velvet. And I'll tell you, had the most symmetrical two points that you ever saw. (laughs) That's not this one. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know what? You, You go ahead and do your hunt and stuff like that. But, you know, really... I thought you guys were sport hunters. No, meat hunters. You're a meat hunter or a sport hunter? Meat and I like sport. To, I, I like to mix Do you it. like the challenge? Yes. Then you're a sport hunter. Do you like the challenge? Uh-uh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be accused of being a sport hunter. <laughs> no, I hunt for fun and meat. Yeah, if I didn't well, get meat well, from it, I wouldn't well, hunt. If I didn't okay. have fun doing it, I wouldn't hunt. Then let me ask you this. Okay. Challenge, sport and meat. I'm a sport and meat guy. So let me ask you this. Why don't you shoot your critters in the head? I'll tell you exactly why I don't shoot critters in the head. Okay. Because I was brought up, or my father, more reasons than this, but I'll start with the first one. My father would hold up a tennis ball and a volleyball. Okay? You'd say, which you rather hit that was the first thing later in life through i've been fortunate to do quite a lot of hunting i have generally found that aiming for the lungs is consistently when you puncture the lung you have a dead animal you have a huge margin for error. And oftentimes you have very, very, very low meat wastage on broadside shots. When I have seen people do headshots, if they're not an expert marksman and they don't know their own limitations, they're dealing with a very small margin of error. Like when you're off an inch, you're off. And it leads to blown off jaws, punctured ears, whatnot. It's just simply a matter. You can hit the rack and split it. 
Well, that's going to ring his bell and knock him down. But just, you know, I mean. I don't think guy, guys don't, guys who shoot lungs aren't shooting lungs strictly for the reason they don't want to mess the rack up. Well, no, okay, but to me. You shoot I, all there, your deer in the head. Yes, or the neck, but most of them in the head. And the reason why I do that is we utilize the heart and the liver. So do I. Well, well, Yanni there is the heart time. out of his deer. Yeah. That's, but he likes the, Yanni likes the lips. Okay, so you like the lips and the nose? I'm joking. Ears? Cheek meat. <laughs> you like cheek, cheek, meat. I like cheek meat. Yeah, right. No, you ever roast deer's head? Pick the meat for tacos? No, I, I haven't. Your method wastes all that meat. Well, I don't call it waste <laughs> because that there is a given. I mean. Yeah, you got to hit them somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so. You know. Until, until I acquire a taste for brains. Yeah, I don't like brains. You know, well, I tell if I ever, but even if I do hit it in the head, I could utilize the brain if I wanted to tan the, the, uh, the hide with it. Yeah. You know, so it, it's not a waste there, but I don't, I don't want a chance of, and, and I always give my son and his friend a bad time because sometimes they don't bring back the heart and the liver. Because they shot the body. No, no. They always they, they always do headshots. Well, what's how far? Like, what's the maximum distance you shoot at a at a at a blacktail? Typically, the maximum distance. Like, what would be a long shot for you? The way you oh, uh, two fifty, three hundred yards. And you still shoot you're shooting the for the head. Yeah, I don't care if you're Lee Harvey Oswald. I think that that's a bad aim. Well. That was a really bad thing I just said. I didn't mean that. The only reason I just talked about Lee Harvey Oswald is earlier I was talking with someone about going to the museum in Dallas, the Book Depository Museum. And I remember looking out the window and, and expecting it to be a much longer distance. It's not. It was a very short distance. Yeah. People always made a big deal about how could he have done it if he hadn't had this and that, and it was impossible. He could have made it with a site, open site. And easy. I sat in that window, and I'm like, that is not... Everybody, all the guys I hang out with do that shot, no problem. Anyhow, I shouldn't have said that. That was insensitive. However, I don't care if you're a great shooter. I think that you well, are. Well, let's, let's put it, you said the maximum, okay? And most of my shots are within 100 yards, 125. Some of them are even, you know, like when I got that one big four-point, you know, I didn't even use my scope. It was so close. I mean... So, uh, when you say my maximum shot, well, that was, you know, when I took and when I got. Well, here's, here's why. This, 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 I'm not going to have this argument with you because you've been hunting your whole life. You've killed umpteen million deer. Like, you know what works for you, okay? You know what you're capable of. You know what works for you. But would you agree with this statement? You have a grandson, right? Yes. Do you tell your grandson to hit him in the head or hit him in the lungs? Hit him in the head. Right. <laughs> his his last year he shot was a five point. Yeah. Okay. Michigan and ten. Was that his first year, hun? Yeah. Was was that his first year? Yeah. And he shot it right in the nose. Put it down pretty quick, huh? Yep. All right. I'm a lung man. 
Yanni's a long man. Are you Yanni? Yeah, I had a couple bad experiences. You know, I had some good experiences, put down some animals very quickly with headshots, but I had a couple that uh, just for me, it doesn't warrant taking that shot anymore. First deer I ever shot, 13 years old, shot him in the head, had to run him down, kill him with a knife. So, And that was probably a jaw shot. Exactly. Yeah. Now, another thing I saw happen, some years ago, when they started, you know, when, when Buffalo leave Yellowstone National Park, the way the laws are set up down in Montana, Wyoming, when a buffalo leaves Yellowstone National Park, he goes from being wildlife to livestock, unlike every other animal. If a wolverine, wolf, elk, black bear, grizzly bear, mule deer, antelope leaves Yellowstone National Park, he's wildlife. A buffalo, which is just as native and has just as much a right to the land as any of these other creatures, leaves Yellowstone National Park, he becomes livestock. The Department of Livestock rounds them up and sends them off to slaughter. Really? So when they first started to open up some permitted hunting for these things, and it wound up being in many ways just to serve the interests of, of killing them off, but the various tribes in that area who had a historic claim to that area were, were allocated tags to go kill buffalo. When I was working on my book about buffalo, I went with... Not with, but I accompanied without them actually asking me to accompany, but I went out with the Nez Perce when they were there to shoot five buffalo. And they were doing headshots. At one point in time, I think that they had all five of the ones they hit in the head were still wandering around with holes in them. It's like... You need to know exactly what you're doing. Had they been shooting for lung, they would all, eventually they got them all. Had they been shooting for lung, you hit it through the lung, it's going to die. Well, the buffalo too, I don't know what what type particular round they were using. But you got to have a sturdy one. I know. But I was just talking to those, we were up, Yanni was there, we were talking to these uh, <clears throat> Chupic Eskimo, they shoot walruses of 223s in the head like you're saying. So if you know about shot placement, and those boys do, they know exactly. They show exactly where to hit the walrus. So the walrus can't even get off the ice when they hit it like that. It can be done, but a lot of people don't have that skill set. So, so clearly, you know what you're doing. You've been doing it your whole life. The average Joe schmo, I think, is better off aiming behind the shoulder because he can be all shaky and all nervous and all kinds of crap like that, and still be six inches off in any direction and kill the thing. You could take and get in your kayak or your canoe and go right out here now, even in this bay right here now. Set yourself up a target over there. Take your rifle and try to hit that target while you're in that canoe. And see how how much how many times you're going to miss. Well, it's illegal. No, for me to shoot I, what from I'm, you're talking about the, the the Eskimo shooting walrus from their kayaks and this is an open open from ocean. motor skiffs and this is open ocean yep and they have a way of knowing and timing their shot oh. and that thing rocks back i'm sure up. they do rocks back up they do yeah they're expert expert marksman no you gather i mean they definitely know what they're doing but um, i but i was a, a distinguished marksman 
a little bit better than an expert. In the military? Yeah. A little bit better than an expert, but I'm not saying I, 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 I've been shooting all my life. My father, before he died, I think I was about five years old, he, he, he bought me a single shot 22. And he would go out target practice, and he was teaching me how to handle it, care for it, this yeah. and that, when I was young. After he died, of course, I couldn't utilize or go with, you know, do the gun again until I was a little bit older. And the only way my mother would allow me to do that is I had to go down and at the Civic Center in Ketchikan, they had an actual indoor range. And I went down there and went through a marksman course, you know, and stuff. So you, you were pretty closely supervised for safety and everything like that. So I was taught then. But I was also taught a sighting, you know, using your sight patterns and this and that. And I got pretty good with it. And just over time, I got real good. I mean, there in the pistol, you know, so. What did you shoot when you were in the military? Well, I, I, shot, I shot the uh, AR-15, M-16. Yeah. Uh, AR-15, what a lot of people know of that semi-automatic but ours was fully the m16 i shot the m60 machine gun is that what they have in the helicopter doors yes yeah. and then the uh also uh qualified with a uh, m79 grenade launcher and a 3.5 rocket launcher which is the bazooka uh -huh. and uh th those i used 45 caliber uh sidearm uh God, what else? They took away from me when I went, entered in the country in Saigon, Tonsonut Air Force Base. Dad, you put, open their duffel bag, put it between your feet there, and you're standing there waiting. And they came through and started taking everything out of my duffel bag. But I brought brought with me, I brought, I brought my uh, 38 Smith & Wesson pistol, and they seized it. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was the dumbest thing they could ever do, you know, because I'm... I'm used to that weapon, and w w what's going to hurt? It's just another weapon that you have in a war zone, yeah. you know? Meanwhile, you got an M60 door gun, and well, you're going sure. to mess things up with your <laughs> Well, no, that, yeah, but, I mean, I thought it awful funny about that. I thought I would never see it again. They gave you know, it back to you? It got back. It got back. And they really? mailed it right back to my our post office box. Back then, I guess they could do it. You know, not anymore. You can't mail to the post office box. But uh, it made it back. It was there when I got back, anyway. Uh, one last question. What do you, what'd your, how'd your dad die when he was so young? Um, my father was in the uh, engineers, Army engineers. And they went to Okinawa, and they were going to pull their invasion going on to Okinawa. So he and his squad went on there first under cover of darkness to start clearing away so that they're not bottling 
necked on the beach by obstacles and stuff like that. So they went in and started working uh, stealth and, and, and wiring it up so that when that started, then they'd start blowing all these obstacles up and clearing the way so that they're, they're not jammed up waiting to get to proceed off the beach. Yeah. And in that process, <clears throat> they, were, they, they were still working on the roads and stuff like that, that they were getting the stuff up off the beaches. So his whole squad was facing towards the beach. So they get out of the way of all the amphibious uh, vehicles coming out, out, up off the beach. So they had to, they're being cautious about that. And one of the fellows that were driving one of those amphibious rigs, uh, they shelled him. And he, he went into shell shock life, so he, uh, like, uh, and turned his amphibious vehicle back around, started heading back down the beach and ran over half my father's squad, including him. And I can remember as a, a child, I could remember looking at his back, you know, when he had his shirt off, and you could actually see it, still see some of the tread marks and big scars and everything like that where they oh, had really? to straighten his back out. Well, he always had problems, and always in and out of the VA hospital, all the time, constantly. And I didn't know how my mother had six kids, but <laughs> she did, you know, so something was working. But for the most part, he was pretty sick, pretty sick person. And as near as I could tell, he had problems with ulcers. I think he probably had some cancer. Um, I don't know, though. But he went down, was in the hospital. Uh, my younger brother, Ivan, was just born. I think Ivan's birthday is the, I don't know, end of, end of June, 1st of July. But my father died before he could see him. Uh, he died in the hospital in Portland, uh, in the VA hospital. After he died, and the VA knew it was service-connected. They knew damn well it was. But they did not, they denied my mother any help. Is that right? Right. Yeah, you know, and that always rubbed me bad because when a veteran, I wasn't married when I was in Vietnam, but I could, I, I've seen other veterans that had a wife and kids home. And I seen the effect they had on them and they really missed them. And that was the most important thing to them. And they didn't want to get blown away and leave their wife and kids without any means of support. And so uh, Joan and I, one time we were going through Seattle, we were at the Red Lion. Red line, uh, and this one fellow from Ketchikan there was going back for American Legion convention. And I told him, I says, you know what really bothers me? That a veteran, when they're having a, a disability, and they're married and they have kids, but they're having a, they're getting a disability pension from the VA. 
if they die, that pension goes away. And that's not what that veteran wants. And while it, and I told him a story about when I was over there, I seen how uh, what effect it had on the soldiers that do, did have a family back home, immediate family, their wife and kids, and how they were Just saying... On top of anything else, all the anxiety about the, their financial well-being. Right, yes. If anything happens to them, who's, how are they going to be taken care of, in other words? And that's true. Back then, if something was to happen to them, their wife and kids didn't get anything. I guess I imagine they have Social Securities help them a little bit, but for the most part, nothing. Yeah. And that was true up until, actually, when the guy listened to me and he went back, and it made a difference. They, that's when they started the process. So I'm 100% disabled now. If anything happens to me now, at least Joan will get some of my pension. But before then, that act came in. If I was to die, she would get nothing. Boom. It'd be So if I was making house payments, or we had house payments, and she didn't have any other income and stuff like that, but maybe uh, Social Security or something, she would be hurting and probably lose her house. Yeah. So it, they did. They They came through, and they said that Right now, she'd get a third of what I get. Uh, I feel it should be a little higher. When I retired from law enforcement, I reduced my monthly, uh, uh, what they were going to give me, to assure that Joan would get something when I pass away. Uh, pass away. Gotcha. So what I did, I set her up to where, because I was, wasn't taking my full retirement some went you know kept back but anything happens to me now and I die before her or whatever she'll get 75% there was another one where I could have set it up for 50% but no I mean she was on there going going through what, what Hardships and stuff like that. I went going through the police department and going through different things, and you know you yeah. do. And so I know there was a lot of times I had to phone home and tell her, "Hey, lock the door and load the rifle," you know, because just be on the safe side. You never know. Because of a case you worked or something, and someone would be out for vengeance. Yeah, yeah, and what what, what the person told me, you know, yeah. himself. So. Yeah, it was. Uh, so that's what I'm talking about. The the the, the military. They 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 turned around a little bit. And just like uh, I'm gonna be keynote speaker for the uh, upcoming uh, 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 gathering for the Vietnam era veterans over in Craig, uh, the 26th of September. I was asked to give a talk for about a 20 minute talk. And uh, in there, you know, the United States government for in the last oh decade, let's say, has realized what, especially uh, since the returning from the veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan and Desert Storm, they came back heroes, 
you know, and we never did. I mean, I came back walking through SeaTac Airport. I had some demonstrators in there, and they're calling me baby killer, and one spat, uh, spat on me. I don't think you'd be spitting on anybody else after that. I mean, I think you uh, learned this lesson because... I think I, that's changed a little bit, thankfully. Well, I, I knocked them out, and I was went in the bathroom in there and cleaning off all the spit, and in walks two Port of Seattle Police Department personnel and two MPs. One guy asked me, did you hit that guy out there? And I turned around and I pointed, put my finger in the chest, each one of them. I said, it hit you, 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 and you. Did you call me a baby killer and spit, spit on me? They did that? I said, yeah. I showed them where they spit. By the time I got out of there, they were gone. <laughs> so, which was good, but... And that was coming home. Yeah, I was coming home. I, they 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 gave me a brand new uniform, fitted me for it, and I got home. When I left the house, there, my mother was in the kitchen painting totem poles, in the seat seat sitting there. And when I came back, snuck in the back door there. Well, I got my fa uh, stepfather down to the bar. We had a few tips, and my uncle and. Had another guy that I ran into. He was in the Navy coming back. So, and we're, we're sitting there in a bar, and I wasn't 21 yet. <laughs> so I told him, and neither, neither, neither was it, neither was it, was this other guy. So I told him, "Hey, come on, we deserve it," you know. Yeah. So we went in there, and even the bartender once in a while would buy us a drink. So I thought it was pretty cool, but. Uh, for the most part. Uh, when I got in there and I got home, my mother was at the kitchen table there painting totem bowls. Is that right? Yeah. And she turned around, looked, went back to painting totem bowls, and all of a sudden, <laughs> she realized I was back home. <laughs> so that was about welcome home enough for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right, Ryan, you got any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I do. You know, lately here, I I realize one thing, and I came to the conclusion there's only one thing good about old age. What's that? It doesn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only thing good about it. <laughs> so, anyway, no, I'm, I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you another one, too. I... I added on to this one. I heard it someplace else, but I added on a few other things. But the golden years, it's not the golden years. It's what I refer to as the metal years. It's where you get silver in your hair, gold in your teeth, lead in your ass, iron deficiency. Your brain is, or mind is like a uh, steel trap, rusted shut. You have enough platinum credit cards to buy the world, but not enough gold to pay them off. And I think that there more accurately <laughs> describes yeah. it than the golden years. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I since 19, 2000, uh, 19, 19, 2000, since 2007, when I had my episode of The Last Cloudy and stuff like that, my, before that, 
I was in as good a shape as you. Yeah. Maybe even better. But now, I mean, I've I've been crashing, going downhill, and then I had that uh, open heart surgery and one of those metal valves put in, and that there further depleted. I mean. Anybody could look at me and they would say, you're not disabled, you know, but looks ain't it. I mean, it's what I can or could, can't do anymore. And, no. and uh, because of all this here going on at one time and the medications they got me on, you can't. I mean, well, how, I, but yeah, but how old are you? Well past retirement age. What's retirement age? 65, you're older now. Well, sure, yeah, I am, but that has nothing to do with it. No. I mean, well, really. I mean, Joan is in better shape than I am. Yeah. You know, and she's older than me. Yeah, she was the, uh, she was the founder of the International Order of Cougars. <laughs> <laughs> Look at her. <laughs> i just kidding, hon. You... Yanni's, can I tell about your wife, Yanni? I then did. we got to wrap it up. Can I okay. tell about your wife, Yanni? You go, t- go tell these guys about your wife, Yanni. You can. Yanni's wife asked him to get married. And he said no. No, he said yeah. Oh. He, he loved his wife so much that he broke the Latvian uh, legacy. R- ring? R- broke the Latvian bloodline. Really? So that was must, not must be taken a, lightly. I'm going to blow your, I'm going to blow a, uh, a quick note on your, I'm going to close the episode with a quick note. Okay. Did you make this one? No, no, not that one. Any of these yours? This one, for sure. Ooh, that's a nice one. Ooh, that looks like the summoner. I'm, yeah, it does look, it's just like the summoner. I'm going to start out with a uh, uh, mating call. And then here's a here's a wounded calf. You like that, Ron? Which one do you get better response at? Uh, the wounded calf makes does come and snort at you and buck their feet up and down. And that that could bring in the buck. Really? Yeah. For doing all that? Oh yeah, I've, I've had that happen to me all the time, and especially this time of year. Oh, you get a doe riled up and the buck will show up. Yes. Yeah, eventually it will, because that doe's doing a lot of stomping and snorting. Yeah. So you'll keep holding her attention as long as you can? You, yes, I will, as long as I can. And you have to hide real good. I mean, I was down. you got to keep her curiosity up. Yeah, you know, I was down. She came da- to go with some dude. I was down underneath the log. <laughs> Stick my deer call out and blow it again. And as soon as she comes back, stomping real close by. I mean, I had him stomp, stomp a foot away from my head, you know. But I'm under the log, and I'm all right. And... And she'll act like that as long as she can't spot you. So she don't know the source. Of what's and the going longer on. you could get her to stomp and snort and stomp and snort, the better your chances are on getting a buck to respond. Yeah, those are bringing blackberries too. Oh, constantly, all the time. And you know, one of one of one of the times I was up there at uh, Paul's bite on a road system, and I see look down below, and here is two doe down there. 
So I tried to get them to stomp and stuff, and I blew, and they did. They were stomping and snorting and stuff like that. So I said, this is pretty cool. And I was up there, and every once in a while, as soon as they slow down, I said, blow it again. They continue stomping, and I see something on the tree line coming in. So I scope it, and it, as soon as I seen what it was, it sent a chill up my spine, and I didn't realize, but, but this bear black bear was move crawling in real slow on his belly oh is that right yes coming in and that just sent a chill out my back because i'm in a muskag uh blowing my deer call and i always hear little subtle noises around the back of me or off to the side you know and i figure well it's got to be a buck coming in and stuff like that well it never did come in you know yeah but yeah and i had a friend of mine that was sitting in a small muskeg and he had his rifle down one in the chamber safety off and he's blowing his deer call and then he's sitting on this stump or, or log and this bear come bolting out of the, uh, the other side of this here short muskeg and before that bear realized that he was not a deer or something, the bear spun. And as he spun away, the ass of the bear came around and knocked my friend off the log on his back. Really? And he never even had a chance to raise his rifle. That's how... Oh, they're fast. They come in very fast. And I... Didn't have time to stick around and see what that bear was going to do with the does, but I, I probably should have. But I had a hunt to do, and I started yeah. going up the road. But I only could picture, you know, he he was coming in stealth and getting in within that prancing distance of maybe, what, maybe 150, 200 feet. Yep. So that's right, ladies and gentlemen, you have right here, bears are fast. But not as fast as you should run to hunty.com, buy one of Yanni's t-shirts. How do you like that ad, Yanni? I love it. Thank you. That's H-U-N-T-T-O-E-A-T.com. And remember, I get nothing. I get nothing for promoting Yanni's t-shirts. Besides free t-shirts. I have two free t-shirts. I'm going to make you, if you don't send Ron and Joan a free t-shirt, I'm going to quit plugging Hunty. Well, I think you ought to pl uh, uh, plug the Kassan uh, restaurant. Yeah, if you're passing through Kassan, go to the Kassan restaurant. <laughs> All you can eat everything for one dollar. <laughs> <laughs> one dollar. Oh yeah. All right. Tune and in next time. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. 
you keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.